Hello and welcome to the Symmetry Sessions podcast. I'm your host, Heather McPaul. Join me for in-depth, down-to-earth, and casual conversations about all things healthy, wealthy, and wise. We delve into topics related to therapy, mental health, relationships, business, and more with guests from all walks of life. And even though I am a professionally licensed counselor, this is just a show. And the information presented is just for informational, educational purposes only. It's definitely not meant to replace getting professional help from a doctor or a therapist. So please seek that help from a qualified healthcare professional if you need it. And if it is an emergency, please call 988 or other appropriate emergency services. I'm very excited to bring to you a variety of amazing guests and topics, so let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to the Symmetry Sessions. Joining us all the way from California today is Katya Cahoon, licensed clinical social worker, certified EMDR therapist, and ketamine-assisted psychotherapist, here to talk to us about psychedelic-assisted therapies. Welcome. Thank you I so am, much, Heather. I'm so excited about this because it's such a big topic in um, in the field of therapy. It's gaining a lot of popularity amongst therapy seekers, and I know zero about it. So I have a lot of questions. So I appreciate you coming here to talk about it with me. Yeah, glad to be here, Heather. Thanks for having me. Um, so first of all, let's just talk about like what is what does that mean, psychedelic-assisted therapies and how have they been found to be helpful for people? Yeah, so let's distinguish between what's legal and what's not legal. So yeah, let's do that. Only, yeah, right? The huh. only legal psychedelic we have available as therapy is ketamine. There's, of mm. course, psilocybin, and you've probably heard about that or maybe seen the documentary, How to Change Your Mind. There's MDMA and others. Those are practiced in the underground or in research settings. Uh, MDMA, oh. we're hoping that it will be legal next year. Psilocybin is sort of, you know, queued up to become legal. But currently, the only option we have outside of research is ketamine. Mm-hmm. So ketamine is a very safe psychedelic that's also an anesthetic. It's been used for decades in field medicine, veterinarian medicine, anesthesia, and so on. And in lower doses, it has a really powerful, neat psychedelic effect. And mm-hmm. that's what we're using in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how um, are there certain topics or that people come to therapy with that it's most useful for, or is it good for everything? And how does it work? Yeah, how does it work? Great question. So it's been researched most for treatment-resistant depression. So that's depression where someone has tried two or more antidepressants and they haven't really made a difference and they've done therapy. However, clinicians like myself also use it for anxiety. It's been used for OCD, for addiction, and of course, for trauma. And we always have to say, and I say this to my clients, look, we don't have a lot of research into this. This is experimental, right? Mm. And we don't know exactly how it's going to impact you. It usually has a positive impact, but sometimes it can be challenging. So this is sort of, and since I'm a trauma therapist, a lot of the clients that come to me have trauma and then they have attending depression or anxiety or other symptoms. 
And so how it works is I probably, you're probably not that interested in the actual biochemical mechanics. Oh no, I totally am, but. Oh, you totally are. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Good. So um, ketamine is relatively safe because it's not a serotonergic psychedelic. So the serotonergic or the classic psychedelics like psilocybin work on the ser serotonin pathway. So that means mm -hmm. that somebody is taking an antidepressant that could be an issue. It can either mute the effect or uh, at the very worst, they can have serotonin syndrome, which is not a good thing to have. Ketamine mm -hmm. works a little bit differently. It works with the NMDA receptor uh, and the dopamine pathway and so on. So There, I can send you a link to a whole podcast that just talks about the effect. We can put it in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. Almost above my pay grade. Mm. Um, but what it does, it um, right away tends to soften depression and depressive symptoms because of how it works. So that's an immediate effect. I've had some clients have said, wow, the fog of depression just lifted after the first session. So that's why it's often used for suicidality, depression, and so on. Um, what it also does, it helps strengthen the observer mind. So this thing that we practice in mindfulness, observing our thoughts or emotions or sensations, ketamine really amplifies that. So someone can observe their trauma without being sort of, you know, pulled under by it. Uh, so there's this dual reality that we also, dual awareness that we talk about in EMDR. So ketamine does that really well. So it's safe. And it works really well in these areas. In terms of the just actual... It, just yeah, a, go ahead. Uh, hmm? So in your observation, do those changes last? Or is this something that needs updating, like, because it kind of uh, titrates out and then, like, symptoms reoccur? It's such a great question. And we don't have a lot of data on this. Right, so there isn't a ton of research happening in that area because that's much harder research to to do. What I the most long term data that I have because I take pretty thorough assessments is ten months after the final ketamine session, and so I look at depression scores, anxiety scores, PTSD, trauma, some of these others, um, mm. and so I have seen that ten months after the scores are holding at the lower level, at the reduced level, sometimes no longer clinically significant level. But that's anecdotal, right? These are small numbers in my own individual practice. And I see this with other you know, clinicians as well that do some longer time assessments. But really, in a sort of more scientific manner, we don't have a ton of data about that. Um, why do you think that, because... <clears throat> using psychedelics in general to find answers to shift perspective has been around since probably the beginning of time. Why do you think just now this is starting to become so popular um, in our culture? Yeah. So yes, they have been used for a long time. There's even some evidence that they were used in early Christianity Uh, so there's some, some cool research and evidence of that. Um, but that's a side note. So um, I think I, I will say that they've always been around, but more in the underground. We have a resurgence or a renaissance, it's sometimes called, because 
of you know what MAPS is doing with MDMA, what other institutes are doing with psilocybin, right? So there is a resurgence, even though they've been around. And then, of course, there was a lot of research in the 50s and the 60s because before they all became scheduled substances, especially mm-hmm. into LSD and so on. Yeah. And, you know, I think on a different level, we need it as a society, right? There is so much happening. There's a, a loneliness epidemic. There are all these unresolved mental health challenges that are really severe, depression, anxiety, PTSD. There's this rift in society. There are the increasing isolation and sense of not belonging. And I think psychedelics really do something in that area, right? They can foster a sense of belonging, a sense of transcendence, um, a connection to others, to the world at large, to the universe. For some people, it's God. For some people, it's nature. Some people, mm-hmm. it's others. So it's almost like we we really need it considering what's going on in the world. Mm. Oh, that's that's interesting. Like it's right on time to be this popular because we need it now more than ever. That's it interesting. It feels that way, right? And people are craving it. I mean, it's really... You know, people come and, and in my practice, at least, the the thing I hear most often is I've tried so much and I still feel so disconnected from myself or from the world. I feel I hit the ceiling with regard to other therapy and I'm just, I need something else. I need something more. Yeah. So I'm going to ask some difficult questions because I have reservations about, about all this and I want to... I want to be able to shift my perspective about it. Um, so, like, are there any dangers, side effects? Because um, I think about, you know, I think it's hard for, you know, people in our culture sometimes to get away from the idea that, like, drugs are bad, right? That was, like, <laughs> so pounded into our heads with, you know, us 80s kids that had D.A.R.E. programs <laughs> and, like... The idea that um, that we have to take a mind-altering drug to get to that place, um, is that, I know you say it's safe, but like, are there any issues with that that people should know about? Absolutely, right? Just because it's safe doesn't mean it's safe for all people mm. and that there are no side effects or issues. So if we look at ketamine in particular, because every drug or every psychedelic substance has a different safety and side effect profile. But if we look at ketamine, for example, it shouldn't be taken by people who have uncontrolled hypertension because it increases heart rate and blood pressure, right? So it shouldn't be taken by pregnant or breastfeeding women because we don't have any data on that. There are certain mental health conditions where it could be dangerous. Schizophrenia, for example, or untreated bipolar personality disorders we have to be really careful um, Mm. of you know is the person able to hold this non-ordinary state of consciousness that isn't always pleasant or easy right sometimes we hear you know this i meet god and it's amazing but sometimes (laughs) these psychedelic journeys especially when you do them therapeutically can be really challenging and difficult yeah those are some of the people who who shouldn't be doing psychedelics, shouldn't be doing ketamine, or only with great caution and support. And then, of course, the things that can happen during the sessions over ketamine, for example, nausea is a common side effect Oh, during the session, but sometimes it lingers after session. 
sometimes things get worse. Uh, one of the things that ketamine and other psychedelics do is they soften protectors, or if we use EMDR language, protective memory networks or defenses, right, mm. regard, depending on what kind of therapeutic modality you practice. And uh, that can really put people into a bit of a crisis if it's not done carefully, right? Memories can come up or emotions sure. that sort of been dissociated from or suppressed can really come out. And that can be very challenging, right? It can be really a bit of a, a crisis. If ketamine therapy or psychedelic therapy is done well, the clinician prepares the client for that, resources them, and then there's an integration after each psychedelic session where you integrate the material and sort of help the client make sense of it, stabilize, you know, resource them. And those are some of the risks. Yeah. So, so for sure, you have to have a certain level of stability um, in order to do it, because it sounds like if you already have a tendency to maybe be outside of reality in any kind of way, um, this could really exacerbate certain symptoms. Um, and, and also just uh, working on like resourcing, I guess is what we would call it in EMDR, so that you can handle um, the difficult things that do come up. Absolutely. So I do think you need a certain amount of ego strength uh, if you're mm. doing this in an in-office setting versus in like, a, a, let's see, a treatment center, right? If you're having 24-7 support, then I think clinicians can and do work with clients who have maybe a more challenging, uh, you know, mental health profile or picture. But in the in-office setting, there yeah, are a certain amount of, of functioning, of ego strengths to be able to hold those sometimes challenging states. Yeah. So what do these sessions look like? Yeah. So after the preparation in the first ketamine session, there usually is a little bit of a check-in. I work what's called ceremonially a little bit. So we might pull something like an oracle card or do a little bit of smudging with Palo Santo or Sage. And that really is designed to take people out of their ordinary state of consciousness and sort of help them have a new experience of themselves. And because this is a big part of what ketamine or other psychedelics are about, to step out of story of these well-worn pathways and experiences, have a new experience. So we're kind of creating a little bit of a container. And then people take a lozenge. So I work with lozenges. Sometimes they're called trochies. And so they held uh, in your mouth for about 20 minutes because the ketamine that we work with gets absorbed orally. That's oh, I see. Mucosa. Uh, I don't work with IV or IM. I'm not a physician and I don't you know, want that sort of in the setting. And then people start to feel the effect of the ketamine. And after about 40 minutes, they reach the peak and then eventually they spit or swallow the saliva and the trochee. And then you know, in the beginning, I do maybe a little guided meditation, read a poem, or some what we call flight instructions. And then I turn the music up because the music plays a huge role with psychedelics. Oh. And then they journey. What and kind of music are we talking kind about? Of music. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, um, so each medicine has slightly different music, right? So with ayahuasca and psilocybin, we maybe connect sort of a little bit more tribal music, often from, from South America and so on. 
With ketamine, the music is kind of more house-like, electronic, oh. uh, synthesizer, you know, 80s, <laughs> right? There. Yeah. Right? yeah. No lyrics, um, because we mm. don't want the distraction from the lyrics. We want the music to kind of create a mood or an ambience uh -huh. and uh -huh. really carry the experience, but not distract from it. So it's often also music that's a bit unpredictable, that elicits a variety of emotions. Some people journey mm -hmm. with that and have a range of experiences from anywhere from sort of an autobiographical journey where they go back to memories, people, situations, to really all the way to ego dissolution, near-death experiences, mm -hmm. and everything in between. And then they come out, then they come down from it, and it's what we call the long tail, where you kind of soften out, it maybe becomes more meditative. And then we chat a little bit at the end and kind of start to integrate and, and process and kind of make sense of the experience. This seems like a long session as opposed to a regular, maybe 45, 60 minute session. How do you, I mean, obviously, you know, sort of around the time this will start to dissipate for people, but how can you, how do you structure your sessions? Is this like a, a one person a day kind of thing? Just as a clinician, I'm curious. Oh, no, this is a, such a good question because this is a big topic because it also touches on cost, right? Mm. So ketamine is great because it's short. And so the actual ketamine, when you do uh, oral administration is maybe, you know, anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes. So that's pretty short. Right, but that's mm. still a three-hour session with a check-in, yeah. setting it up, journeying, integrating a little bit. Three hours, as compared to, for example, maybe ten hours from MDMA or you know six oh, or so yeah. hours for psilocybin. Um, it's still three hours plus the preparation plus the integration. It's not covered by insurance. Most yeah. of the clinicians work uh, out of network only because the reimbursement is so bad. Right. So it gets expensive fast. And that's one reason why I developed a group model, because then you can actually make it 30 to 50% cheaper for clients. And still, and I believe clinicians should make a living. <laughs> still sure, sure. Yeah. As a clinician. So um, I don't know if you know the answer to this. I certainly don't because I never really um, went in that direction, but I'm assuming there are different regulations on this depending on what state you're in. And I feel like California is always kind of like ahead of everybody else when it comes to these sort of progressive um, tools and things. Um, do you know if, if, if this is something that varies state to state and whether or not there's any, um, you know, future thinking about making it, Oh, uh, you know, a countrywide thing. Yeah. So when it comes to ketamine, actually, I also practice in Kansas City. So I kind of live this split life. And most of my ketamine I actually do in Kansas City. Oh. So as a licensed clinical social worker, I'm insured through NASW insurance. It's called Prefer, Prefer now, I think. And so Preferra considers this in my scope of practice, regardless of where I am. I just have to be licensed in that state. Right. Practice within, you know, the, the guidelines uh, for my profession. 
So yeah, it's being practiced all over the country and in other countries as well where it is legal. So there really isn't that much of a difference when it comes to ketamine um, nationwide in the U.S. I see. And yeah. so those lozenges, like, is there a dispensary? Like, where do you get those for your clients? Right. So yeah, I do an initial consultation and intake with clients. And then if they feel they qualify, I refer them to my prescriber, which is either an MD or gotcha. a nurse practitioner. And they do a medical evaluation just to make sure that client is okay medically. And then they write the script and the script gets filled by a compounding pharmacy, the local mm -hmm. compounding pharmacies, you know, ones that operate nationwide. Sure. And then they fill that script and and that kind of ketamine is actually a generic, so it's very cheap. That's very really oh. reasonable to get those lozenges and trophies because it's it's a generic at this point. What do you have to say to the people that, because I've come across this a few times where um, clients or people are like, oh, I'm just going to microdose myself. Like, I think people have this idea that, oh, I just do the thing and then things will shift for me rather than there's a need to do the therapeutic piece with it. Right. So I'm going to give a pragmatic and then a therapeutic answer. I mean, pra looking pragmatically, we do have this mental health crisis. And even with groups or other modalities, it's still inaccessible for many people or there aren't clinicians. Like if we look more rurally, right, there are often not enough clinicians. So I can see why people do that, right, just from a pragmatic lens and why people are desperate or feel like they've been let down by the system and they're just looking for something, anything. Yeah. And then I have fewer concerns around microdosing other than we actually don't have a lot of research on how effective it is. Huh? And so it's a lot of anecdotal evidence. And, and you know, you look in, on Reddit, for example, people share their experiences and some people have some amazing results with it, and right? some people not. From a therapeutic perspective, speaking as a clinician, of course, it's great to have the therapeutic support. And I would say, especially if you really go into the psychedelic experience, not microdosing, but actually taking psychedelic doses mm -hmm. because of that risk of a difficult experience occurring. And there's actually even some research that the more challenging the psychedelic experience, the more beneficial it can be in terms of healing mm. with the right support and the right guidance. And so I don't ever use the word bad trip with my clients, mm -hmm. but I do talk about challenging or difficult trips. But outside of the therapeutic container, I think there can be bad trips, especially if the setting is bad. So let's say you're at a party or in an unsafe-ish situation and you're getting into this non-ordinary state and you feel very vulnerable, but also aware of sort of that it's not safe. That can be a really, really bad trip. Mm. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, do you ever like guide their trip or are you simply there to support uh whatever their whatever's happening for them yeah so generally speaking the way i practice is i trust what we call the inner healing intelligence so in ifs terms we might call that the self right mm. tara brock the meditation and mindfulness teacher speaks about your highest wisest self or part of yourself so I tend to trust that and really support that and go where the client goes. 
Mm-hmm. However, if the client needs help, I'm there to support and resource and help. As an example, I had one client who had sort of a challenging trip and she was being pursued by this henchman who wanted to hang her. Oh, so it sounds sort of quite challenging and difficult. <laughs> and she was just running away and have, feeling a lot of anxiety. So I said to her, look, is it okay? Would you feel safe to turn around and actually look at that henchman in your journey? So she, this is happening. It's sort of like a dream. It can mm-hmm. be very abstract. And so she did. She felt supported and they gave some gentle touch to ground her to the present day. Some little touch to the shoulder. And she looked at that henchman and realized it was a part of herself that was mm. trying to help her sort of kill a story that was no longer serving her. Oh. And the second she looked, she faced her fear. Right? She confronted her fear the fear disappeared and she realized, oh, this is just a part of my journey, a part that's actually trying to help me. I don't have Mm. to run from it. Uh, So those are the interventions I tend to do. Very gentle, very sort of, most of the time I try to get out of the way unless the client really needs me, whether they need touch resourcing or some verbal encouragement or just some help. Sometimes clients say, well, I feel I'm hitting this wall. I can't go through, I can't get through. Mm. And so very often I might say something like, you know, try not to push. Let's just get curious about the wall. And then often when they get curious and start to explore it, something interesting happens, right? So helping them not fight what's happening in the session, but rather sort of go with and explore and get curious about, right? You hear some IFS language in that. So, yeah, uh, I heard Dick Schwartz talking about, uh, and actually I watched... Um, a video of him doing couples counseling while they were, um, I'm assuming on ketamine, they were um, doing some kind of psychedelics. I'm assuming it's ketamine. And um, it's interesting to watch because um, I'm sure inside of them, there's this, just this sort of peacefulness that like, that like, like an EMDR, that desensitization of like, um, something sort of, you know, the, the veil comes off or like the, there's just a, maybe less defensive in front, but it was kind of hard to watch because I don't know, you know, to me, it's like watching somebody under the influence and you're like, uh, so, um, but I imagine, you know, having a relationship with the client, there's so much more presence in yourself to be, you know, sort of on that journey with them. Um, But he talks about how that's like a a lot where the IFS is um, or where he'd like to do more research is, you know, pairing those two things together. And it reminds me of, you know, having one of the, uh, you know, um, I forget what you call them, but interventions in the EMDR is like, can you step into that scene as the adult you are today and rescue that inner child that's stuck in that memory? Um, and I have heard people say that in their usage of, of psychedelics, they're able to actually almost create a new memory of, of doing that to replace the, the, you know, to get out of that stuckness. And I think that's why he likes the idea of it being paired together because you can create repairs, which brings me to my next question is 
psychedelics like ketamine versus EMDR. In my mind, EMDR can do the same exact thing without having to take anything that might alter um, consciousness. So what do you, can you speak to that? Like, what are your thoughts as also an EMDR therapist? Absolutely. So for me, it's always, let's do the least invasive intervention first. I think that's always good practice as any clinician, right? So if EMDR alone helps, great, right? No need to throw something else at it. But we all mm -hmm. know that every approach has limitations, including EMDR, right? Mm -hmm. And I have some of those clients where it's just, you've done EMDR, and there's just, you hit a ceiling, right? Because maybe there are protector parts that are so strong or protective memory networks or just hit a ceiling, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this is most of the clients who come to me, whether I work, they're my regular clients or I work adjunctively and they have another regular client, they kind of hit that ceiling, right? And then I feel psychedelics are really incredible because they tend to soften those protectors and they can sometimes do, you know, months of therapy in one session. So it's sort of a really great amplifier of healing mm -hmm. and really helping people that have tried a lot of things and, and really just feel like they're stuck, right? Because of what you're also seeing in Dick Schwartz's sessions, which I assume he worked psycholytically, so with a lower dose, and he probably had a lot of consents beforehand to be able to do the things he did, right? Yeah. right? So then you can see, oh, wow, the defenses are lowered, right? And people feel more connected or more open and able to do that. Mm -hmm. Have you ever, do you mostly do it with individuals? Um, so or have you ever done it with couples? I've not done it with couples because I'm not a couples therapist, but I do it in groups. So small groups, mm -hmm. uh, wow. health providers, um, women's groups, men's groups. We are currently running sort of what we call a level two group. That's for people who've done ketamine before with me and who want to go deeper into more difficult material what's sometimes called the shadow or mm -hmm. themes of death and rebirth you know these big topics that are typically challenging and difficult to interact with wow that's fascinating because um, that sounds like a lot to manage as a clinician I, I imagine you have it's not just you there are support staff there are other clinicians if you're doing yeah, it in, in group. small groups where we have four to six people, I have a co-leader. She's amazing. We've worked together for many, many, many groups. So we have a really good, you know, energy between us. And then for this larger level two group, which is eight people, we actually have four support people. So three in addition to me uh, during the ketamine sessions and the preparation the group preparation, group integration. We don't need that many people, but for the ketamine sessions, we want extra support. I will say most of the time, ketamine is pretty internal, right? But then there are people mm. who are maybe having an app reaction, right? So they're, they're crying or they're making noise or need extra support or maybe need a somatic release. And then it's great to have additional people present mm -hmm. that are trained. So most of the time, it just looks like an internal experience where the person is just sitting there kind of inside their own mind, the world inside their mind. Yeah. yeah. So most of the time they're lying down, right? It's easier to lie down, maybe propped up a little bit, um, especially when you work at psychedelic doses, right? So the higher you go, the less people are able to speak. So what Dick did, again, going back, was probably lower dose where people can still be verbal. Right? Yeah. So most of the time when you go a little bit higher, people lie down, 
think it's harder to speak and you really have that inner directed inward journey oh. where you, you know, journeying through time or space or memories or just somatic experiences it can be very somatic visuals depending on how somebody responds to it um do you uh, i'm curious about the prep work ahead of actually doing this but i'm also so hold on to that for a second but i i wonder if you touch on or the the for a lot of people this can be feel like a very spiritual experience and i wonder if if you speak to that with your clients yeah so when I do the preparation, I talk about the range of experiences, anything from, you know, the biographical to, you know, meeting God or goddess. And so the spiritual can be part of that, right? And spiritual isn't religious. Spiritual is really the sense of connection to something greater. Right. Could be nature, could be God or goddess, could be, you know, connection to all living beings, right? So that is not uncommon with psychedelics and it can be really powerful and healing, right? This sort of one of those transcendent experiences where you transcend your own self, your ego, you know, all the things that are happening with you and feel connected to something greater, mm. um, including having a sort of a spiritual experience. And for some people it is religious. I've had a client who um, met Jesus and he was this kind of normal dude in jeans and a t-shirt. And it was just very healing for her to connect in that way because she had had a lot of religious abuse. She grew up, in the Midwest, very conservative in a religious background. I have quite a few clients of like that in Kansas city where there has been sort of this religious abuse. Mm. And then that kind of experience can be very healing in that sense. Right? Yeah. Jesus or God isn't this authority figure that's saying you are sinful, you are shameful, but is this dude in jeans and a t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's neat. I mean, I guess I just assumed for a minute there was a part of me that assumed, oh, well, it's just your, it's just different parts of your mind, right? Like it's just different parts saying hi in, in different, with different faces or, you know, it's your subconscious manifesting or whatever. And then I thought, well, you know, I, I mean, Dick Schwartz says when you're most connected to self, you're connected to whatever is bigger than that. So it's not really far-fetched to think that, you could be connected to something while doing that. Absolutely. I mean, for some people, it is that they have a real parade of parts come through. They meet different parts. And I had this one client, for example, he you know, had done IFS before, but it hasn't really, hadn't really resonated with him. He just couldn't access it. It seemed kind of woo-woo to him, you know, weird, mm -hmm. very analytical guy. And we did a couple of ketamine sessions, and suddenly these parts came up for him, and they were very visual. They were you know, all meeting in the locker room. It was like, it's really super cool. And he started to be able to interact with them and sort of develop the self that was, you know, guiding and interacting and integrating and befriending these different parts. So for some people it is like that, but, you know, not everybody kind of has that access or works like that. For some people it is a connection to something greater mm. uh, or to the universe or, you know, to just feeling more whole, more, complete in a way like i'm not just my trauma right? yeah you see this too right that's so people feel they're permanently flawed or damaged and that can often be healed and they see oh i'm more than that i'm okay yeah. and it's so, so, yeah. it seems so trite when we say i'm okay but when you really feel that i am okay right. on, a, on a deeper level it's incredibly healing um 
much like getting trained to do anything really uh, in this field, EMDR, um, IFS, um, it, generally there's an experiential piece to understanding how it works. And I'm curious if you've done it yourself in order to be able to get how it works. Yeah, I have. And I think it's actually really important as a clinician in this field to have had your own experiences of non-ordinary states of consciousness and to really understand what clients are experiencing and even to be able to intellectually, intelligently talk about it. Um, what is that like to you know, not feel in control, for example, in that way, because yeah. that's a huge component that can be very scary and also very healing, right? To let go and go with the flow and trust the process. So I'm a big proponent of, of people having had their own non-ordinary states of consciousness when they guide others in those states. Yeah, I agree. I certainly think that um, it's important for clinicians to work through anything that might come up because of somebody being in that state and, you know, just working on our own stuff and having an experience so that we know a little bit about what it's like to experience that and what the process is. Um, so that's really neat. Do you, you don't have to, but do you want to share what your experience was like or one of them? Yeah, I've had a range of experiences. I've I've experienced almost every mode of administrations from lozenges or trochees to intramuscular IM to intravenous IV. And so that also came with a range of experiences, some more biographical, including some intergenerational trauma, where you sort of can go back and, and see some of the intergenerational patterns of things that need to be healed. So this is another thing oh. that can come up in psychedelics, right? That's much harder to treat, for example, with EMDR to process, right? Because it's, what do you target there? Right. Um, as well as sort of an ego dissolution experience where I actually couldn't remember my name <laughs> and, and who I was really. I mean, it sounds scary. In that moment, it was actually kind of very freeing. And then this word Katya came back and I was like, huh, what's a Katya? <laughs> it was a really, really funny experience of realizing, oh, we become so attached to our story, to who mm. we are and to realize, oh, there's still something left, even if all of that goes, can be really he healing and freeing. Yeah. And I've had some difficult experiences as well, including some nausea that lasted, lasted for almost 24 hours. So it gives me oh. a lot of compassion. Because sometimes that can be an effect of maybe something isn't properly processed, that kind of gets stuck, or you're just having a, a physiological response to the ketamine, and that can be unpleasant. So now I have a better understanding, having experienced it myself, and it kind of can guide people through that. It's really interesting. And this is sometimes we go down rabbit holes on this podcast, but I, it's interesting that you say that about like forgetting your name and that being okay, because I've often tried to explain to like just friends of mine about IFS and the idea that like only parts hold on to identity, like that you are this, that you are that, where self is beyond that. It does not, it just is, right? And I think that's really hard for people to grasp because they want to, especially these days, they want to really identify with labels, like this is who I am. Um, and really that's, there's probably a reason why we do that 
and and a lot of it might be attached to you know fear of the unknown fear of death of i think we think so much that living is like identity and and living are so closely connected that wow what would it be like to strip all of that away and in my mind that is the connectedness to everything else if that Absolutely. makes sense yeah and i mean that's it is a hard concept to grasp, right? And I think that's where some of the value of psychedelics or non-ordinary states of consciousness, you you actually don't need to take drugs for that. You can do holotropic breathing, for example. But that's mm. where the value is because then you really have a felt experience or can have a felt experience of that where you realize, oh, I am more than that or you have the sense of connection. But it's not intellectual, right? It's yeah. not happening here in our forehead. You know, it's, it's really happening in our bodies with our whole being and our soul. Right? So it transcends yeah. that, you know, sort of typically intellectualized life that most of us lead. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I think trauma puts that in place, right? Because in mm-hmm. we lose that ability to be connected with those things when we've experienced trauma. And who hasn't? I use that word very flexibly because capital T, little t doesn't really matter it's all traumatic. And like you said, the generational trauma, um, probably going back to the beginning of time, to be honest, you know, and, um, and the ability to, to actually almost feel like you're going and, and healing these, all these different things in order to just actually let go of everything you think that you are. That's, crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes to all of that, right? I think everybody has experienced some trauma. And certainly, you know, we look at the history of the world, you know, it's, it's, there's been a lot of trauma happening, you know, yeah. So it, it's powerful. And I think that's why the psychedelics have been around for so long is really as a healing modality for people to make sense, to confront death, right? There's an inscription on one of the Greek temples. If you die before you die, you won't have to die when you die. Yeah. The sense of confronting these things before they actually happen so we can make sense of them and, and make our peace with them. Yeah. Um, you just reminded me of something. Do you have, like, one of the conversations I have with a friend of mine all the time is where the origin of where a lot of um, therapeutic modalities come from and really being transparent about how, you know, um, this, you know, a lot of these ideas go back to other peoples and really wanting to honor that instead of culturally appropriating some of these things. And I kind of wonder if you can speak to that in some way yeah that's such a big topic and it's even more significant when we look at for example ayahuasca right where there really is appropriation that in some cases we know is is really impacting communities in those countries ketamine is a little bit different because it is sort of (laughs) man-made even though Mm. it's similar to some to the things we found in nature we find in nature so there is a little bit less of that risk because there aren't any indigenous or wisdom traditions surrounding it. But certainly mm. we we sometimes tap into some of those traditions, for example, when we group, do group work or smudging, right? So mm-hmm. I think, first of all, it's being mindful of that, making sure we don't harm anyone with that. And then also where and if possible, 
supporting communities that are impacted by this. So for example, I personally, no judgment to anyone who does that, but I personally wouldn't travel to Peru or Colombia to visit a shaman there or journey there with ayahuasca because I feel the impact on the communities is challenging. In some cases it helped communities and others it's really almost destroyed them. Mm. So just being mindful, you can find these things here. You can work ethically with these things and work with ethical providers. And that's sort of how I approach this. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about misinformation and the myths that probably need clearing up. What are some of the things that you've heard bouncing around? Because some of this stuff, I feel like when it gets into the public eye, um, people run wild and it becomes part of that sort of psych, psych, pop psychology um, uh, uh, and it gets twisted around. And so just curious, like some things that you've seen that maybe need clearing up. I think the number one is this will fix me. And this mm. will fix me in a couple of sessions, right? And this is a little bit the challenge with how to change your mind. For example, some of the documentaries that sometimes the way it's presented, it looks like people have one session and they're, you know, fixed and cured. That's not actually what happens in reality most of the time. For some people, this can happen on occasion. But when you're working with complex trauma, with, you know, complicated situations, it, there just isn't a fix, right? So ketamine and other psychedelics, it's still a therapy, meaning you have sort of a therapeutic arc and you maybe also have to do your own work in between, right? I always tell clients what you do between sessions matters as much as what you do in the session. Because sure. right? we meet for, let's say, with ketamine, three hours, EMDRs, maybe one hour. So that's a short amount of time. So I don't see it as a fix. And, and from the very beginning, when I work with someone, I set expectations and say, you know, this will give you a new experience of yourself. Here are the things that I see will help you with that. It's not going to magically fix or cure your anxiety or trauma. Depression, a little bit different because ketamine really does have a good effectiveness with that. But I still would never use that word or, you know, promise, hey, this is going to fix all your ailments and, and you'll never have an issue again. I think mm. as long as we live, we have to continue to work on ourselves to some degree, but hopefully not suffer from yeah. you know, the symptoms that pe brings people to, let's say, EMDR or, you know, psychedelics. So that's I like that. Yeah. I like that because I I tell my uh, clients all the time there is no nirvana at the end like we're you're never going to be fully done okay uh, not in this lifetime anyway and so you, but we do and but I like the way that you phrase that um, but we don't have to continue with the suffering I think that's you yeah. tried removing suffering and really having an eye on that right so if I have a client I've worked with for let's say three, four years, and they're still having so much anxiety, you know, then we need to look at what else is there. Is it psychedelics? Is it an antidepressant, right? So this is really my main goal, alleviate suffering. And with that, then we can really, you know, get to higher states or be more productive or, you know, have better relationships, right? But mm. first we need to look at removing suffering and, and distress, yeah, yeah. What other um, misinformation or myths have you seen? Um, maybe the other one, and I don't see this so much with ketamine, but I've heard it a few times, it will make me permanently crazy. 
Oh. Or will it change me to the point that I'm a different person? Right? Will mm. the identity thing again? Yeah, <laughs> the identity thing, right? Will it fundamentally change me? You know, will I suddenly become, I don't know, if I'm Republican, a Democrat? <laughs> <laughs> I've almost heard this um, almost verbatim like that, right? So um, I have not seen that. And I don't think that's really possible, right? Because mm. I think we have a core identity. And I think of it a little bit in EMDR terms, right? It's about adaptive information processing. So what is adaptive doesn't typically get changed, right? Because mm. it's there for a reason, it's helpful. But we're really looking at the integration or the processing of maladaptively stored or maladaptive information. Mm -hmm. And I think psychedelics are not too different from that. We're, yeah, we're removing things that are not helpful or helping integrate things that are painful or difficult. That typically doesn't fundamentally change a person. Someone who's like a type A driven person is not going to be, you know, someone who lives under a bridge and or hashtag van life, you know, I'm going to check out from everything. <laughs> Unless that really works for them and they realize, you know what, screw my tech job, screw all of that. I'm going to just start living Live in a van down by the river. Yeah, that's funny. That's what they want, right? I mean, yeah. They might not see that as a possibility right now, but if the journey takes them there, it is what they need and want. Well, yeah, I mean, that makes sense because um, if we heal the things that drive these protector parts to do what they do and they don't have to do that anymore then there's more room for possibilities that we could do other stuff not necessarily be other thing or like change who we are but we might be more likely to engage in something that we were fearful of before absolutely or if fear was the driver let's say somebody was very hot driving but they were driven by fear fear of failure fear of you know being homeless or whatever, right? And then it switches to being driven maybe by joy. And that mm. might change how they approach work or life or relationships, but it doesn't fundamentally alter them. It just changes how they're approaching these things. Now they're driven by joy or passion or, you know, a, a more meaningful mm. kind of driver than just this fear um, drive that a lot of people with trauma have, right? It's a survival mechanism. Yeah. It's helped them survive. Yeah. Right? And then at yeah. some point, like you said, the it stops having its usefulness and those protectors don't want to work that hard anymore. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, I need a, you know, cabana and a virgin colada. Yeah, right. But it also seems like then there becomes this cohesiveness where we're all working in tandem instead of, you know, I say like parts will hijack you in order because they because they think they're in that survival mode. Because I, I really actually don't believe in maladaptive as a, as a term because I think it's just adaptive. It's what it needed to be. Um, is it working now? No, but your, your parts don't always realize that. I think that's a really good reframe. Agree, right? There is some judgment in that language and that, how that's framed, right? Everything was adaptive at some point because right. it brought you here and helped you survive, right? Right. And then at some point it has sort of outlived its usefulness or no longer serves or it starts to kind of maybe even hurt further growth or processing or progress. No. Yeah. yeah. So it, it sounds like um, such an interesting modality to help people get to that place of clarity and um, 
internal connectedness, which then affects the way that they operate outside of themselves. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, again, it's so neat because we have, you know, the self, the IFS language really kind of works well with this mm. modality because we see a lot of that arising naturally. Right? Yeah. And so I often, when I work with clients, just think about removing obstacles to healing, right? So helping protectors, helping soften protectors, and then the healing sort of, you know, happens through the psychedelic, the medicine and through their inner healing intelligence, right? But I sort of just help them remove the obstacles so they can journey and benefit from these non-ordinary states. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want to um, make note of, something we didn't touch on about this? Yeah, I think, you know, if if somebody is interested in this therapy is to really do a little bit of research who you're working with, whether it's underground or above the ground, right? No judgment to that. Just do some research. What is that person's background? Are they mm. trauma-informed? How mm. aware were they trained Right. Do they have experience with your particular issue? Let's say it's a PTSD, a veteran with PTSD or, or a young mom suffering from postpartum depression. Right. Does that person understand that? Do they have some mm. experience of training with that so that they can hold space for you in that environment? Because unfortunately, yeah. there are unethical providers and there have been abuses because in that non-ordinary state of consciousness, you're also very vulnerable. Um perceptive, receptive, right? Even physically vulnerable because it sort of slows you down. You might not be able to move very well. Mm. So to be really careful and evaluate carefully who you're working with and don't be shy to ask them some questions, right? I all, I personally, and I know many others offer free consultations and to really, you know, ask that clinician, what's your background? What's your training? What's your experience with that? How do you work? Have you done yeah. your own work? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I also think to your point, and I'm just in general, I tell everybody this, like, if you have a specific, if you belong to a certain population, or like veterans, for instance, or you have a very um, specific issue like postpartum depression, you certainly want to be with somebody who has extensive trauma in that area. Because, you know, I'm sure that you, like most clinicians, see how we present ourselves sometimes online, we say we do all the things in all the ways, and that can't possibly be true. So I think it is important for people to vet better their therapists um, to make sure that because they're going to be so vulnerable that um, they don't run into uh, any problems because this person doesn't know enough about that right. stuff. And if somebody over promises or promises, this will fix you, this will cure you. Run right away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you so much for joining me today. You have really, you've changed my mind about it because I was very like, oh, I don't know about this. And um, I, I always feel very skeptical about things that become super popular um, in public, in the public um I and but this um it's it is, sounds very interesting about how to get people to a certain state in order to um do deeper work so it's I want to thank you for for giving all that information it it really uh I'm all, I'm like mm. 
curious. Now you have a curious. I'm curious about, right? for myself, you know, um, about what it could show me, you know. Um, so, yeah. So, really, thank you for sharing and taking the time all the way across the other side of the country to come talk about this. Uh, thank you so much, Heather. And thank you for great questions. And I, I would say it's good to be skeptical, right? I always welcome those parts and those elements because it's really important, right? That's how we stay safe by being skeptical. Uh, yeah. So thank you. <laughs> and I'm glad I could thank change you. your mind a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, I hope we can do the same for all our listeners today. I hope so, so too. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in connecting with Heather or the guest today, please see the show notes for that info. If you'd like to be a guest on the Symmetry Sessions, the link to send us your request is also in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show and you'd like to show some support, buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash symmetry sesh, S-Y-M-M-E-T-R-Y-S-E-S-H. You can make a small donation to help keep the episodes coming. And when you buy me a coffee, you're supporting small business professionals and podcasters. Every donation helps me to get better podcasting equipment and network to find new and interesting guests. Don't miss an episode. The Symmetry Sessions launches every first Friday of the month. So make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time.